sure. Verse 12 of chapter 14, and I'll go until verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be, with, will be in you. Pardon me. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's. Who sent me. Our Father in heaven, this morning, having heard your word, we ask that just as we sang at the top of our service, that you would come. Come and thy people bless and give thy word success. Lord, we know that that is not something that you would deny your people. So with all the things on our minds and in our hearts, may we offer up to you a sacrifice of worship as we consider your word this morning together. And we ask that you would grant your spirit to enlighten, to illuminate, to give light to what you've spoken, that we might walk in the newness of life we have because of Jesus' work. And we will give you all the praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen title this morning is a helper to be with you forever. This is the very word of Jesus in describing the Holy Spirit. As we come to this passage, we come to the point where Jesus, who has already spoken multiple times of the Holy Spirit, now takes a turn in discussing who the Holy Spirit is as one who actually will live not only alongside, but dwell in believers. It's a pretty mystical sounding thing that we talk about when we talk about the Holy Spirit and his indwelling presence with believers. And when we think of the purpose of it, again, Jesus makes it very clear in verse 16. I will ask the Father and he will give you, now you could put in here, the Holy Spirit. That is true. But the reason this title is selected at this moment, it's very helpful for us to consider the context of where we've been the last couple chapters. Chapter 14 opened with, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus, who is on 
the last night of his life on the earth before the crucifixion and before his resurrection, takes the time to care more for his own disciples than for his own soul, his own troubled soul, his own troubled heart. He's promised them, in verse 2 of chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. So last week we considered the home that Christ makes for the troubled heart. And this week we see that that promise is not merely a distant reality to enter into upon death, but it is in fact something that is mediated or communicated, or rather perhaps even better to say, that we are invited into in our day-to-day life in Christ. That the very Holy Spirit who will one day usher our souls from this world into the presence of God is not just somewhere waiting along the sidelines of your life until that moment happens. And in his presence, he is not a silent presence. Now, this is kind of a funny thing. Theologians have dubbed the Holy Spirit, with affection, I'm sure, the shy member of the Trinity. Have you heard that? The shy member of the Trinity. And that being because what Jesus says of him has more to do with him pointing us to Christ than anything else. That in his title of being a helper, he is the one who helps us to recall the things that Jesus has taught us. He is the one who is the gift of the Father as per the request of the Son in order to do what the Son in this particular context will no longer be able to do when he leaves his disciples. Do you remember this? He said in chapter 13, little children, verse 33, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. No wonder their hearts were troubled to leave their rabbi, their teacher, who they, whom they had walked with for three years, for whom they have left their lives entirely behind. It's kind of a funny thing as you think about this moment, what's going on in the hearts and minds of the disciples. Well, later on, even after the resurrection, you have a moment where the disciples know Jesus is risen. They've already talked to him, but he's, he's disappeared. He's gone off to appear to other disciples. And, and Peter just kind of has this moment in the end of the Gospel of John where he says, I'm going fishing. I don't really know what to do if Jesus isn't here. And truly, that's where we find our own hearts. Is that not the case for each of us? If if Christ is simply one on whom we put our faith in an unrelational context, that is to say, he's my fire insurance, so that what I see of the Bible telling me of judgment and hell and all the things that my sin has earned for all of humanity... I know that at the end of my life, this Jesus guy is going to pull me out of the fire and bring me into a better place, whatever that might be. The Spirit is the one who communicates the relational nature, the relational aspects of our knowing Christ. So our title is a helper to be with you forever because this is what Jesus promises to us. And this, if you have a sermon outline, it might be helpful to you, it might not. But our first thing, perhaps, that we ought to consider is that very simple call to listen to the truth of what Jesus has said, to find help in the Holy Spirit for life in Christ. And you could very easily and rightly cross out the word in and put with 
And I'm not saying that because I'm second-guessing my outline, but because both things are true. We have a life in Christ. How do we access that life in Christ? Because even as I live my day-to-day, Monday through Sunday lifestyle, a lot of it sometimes feels like I'm kind of just doing based on my decision, my desires, my goals, And certainly, I have the influence of other people affecting how my week goes, right? Same for all of us. But Christ wants to see to it that his people find the help they need for life in him. So we'll we'll move through this passage, but I want to give you just a couple snapshots of where we've come from in our understanding of the Holy Spirit as we study the Gospel of John. And the Holy Spirit, of course, is a massive subject that could take years of sermon series to cover. Uh, We're just going to look at a couple of things from the Gospel of John, and you can feel free to turn to these verses or write them down or forget about them if you want. Um, But the first mention of the Holy Spirit in chapter 1 of John's Gospel is from John the Baptist. And John, having baptized Jesus, testifies that when Jesus came out of the water, he saw the Holy Spirit abiding on Jesus. That the Holy Spirit came as he, as he often would, would come at certain events in the Old Testament, would appear and would perform some work or would lead a, a military general or even a king. But John noticed something different about Jesus, that the Holy Spirit appears and remains with Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 5, we begin to understand the teaching of the Holy Spirit and as we hear it from Christ, when he has a conversation with Nicodemus the Pharisee and speaks of the new birth, he says, you must be born again. You must be born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is trying to understand that. Well, how do I know if I've been born of the Spirit? And what do you even mean? What am I supposed to do? And he says, look, the Spirit comes and goes just like the wind. You see the effects, but you don't know where he's going or where he came from. Such is it with those who have been born again, who have that new birth. Again, in chapter Three, verse 34, John the Baptist speaks again that God gives the Holy Spirit to his people without measure. It's one of my favorite things translate, as far as translations goes. Without measure. That is not to say that any one of believers in this room might receive a portion of the Holy Spirit according to their merit or according to God's random selection, but rather upon the people of God, he gives his spirit without measure. The ruler is thrown out. The measuring cups are useless. The Spirit is poured out on his people without measure. That is without restraint. That is not a matter of carelessness, like like when you're making macaroni and cheese out of the box and you say, that looks like enough water, right? Don't we all do that? (laughs) Maybe it's just me. But when we kind of go here or there about measuring when you're cooking and preparing the food, Jesus is not like that. He gives his spirit liberally to those who are his. In verse 63 of chapter 6, he speaks of the spirit again as the giver of life. The spirit is the one who gives life and the flesh profits nothing. We don't bring anything to our being born again, being made new. The spirit is the one who transfers the life of Christ into the life of an individual. In chapter 7, verse 39, Jesus speaks of those who believe as those who out of, out of whom their heart will flow with living water. And John gives us a little moment in verse 39 to say, Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit here. That that living water that quenches the, the sin-thirsty soul 
is not just an inward experience, but it's an outward expression as well. It is the reality of the life of the one who is in Christ. And this Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. It is not a mystical energy. He is God of very God. He is God, the Holy Spirit, equal to the Father, equal to the Son, not in their personhood, but in their essence, in their Godness. And this is this language that I'm using right now. This is just our best guess at how to understand the nature of our triune God. Even the word triune, you don't see that in the Bible. But it's important for us not to consider that the Holy Spirit is some lackey of God who is sent to do his bidding in the lives of his people. The Spirit is united perfectly to the Father and the Son. And so when Jesus makes promises like, whoever has my commandments and keeps him, he it is who loves me, he who is lo- loves me is also loved by the Father, I will love him and manifest myself to him. Well, how does Jesus manifest himself but by his Spirit here on earth? There's a unity between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So perhaps a summary sentence of what we need to grab grab hold of from this passage and what we need to wrestle with the rest of the sermon is that the Spirit of God, who is sent by the Father at the request of the Son, lives in disciples of Christ and moves powerfully to preserve and help them in all their life in Christ. He's sent by the Father at the request of the Son. If if you didn't notice that here, um, if you look down again, uh, we'll just start at verse 15. If you love me and you, you will keep my commandments, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. What a wonderful promise. You know, we often throw, and I feel guilty about this so much because I I say it all week long. I'll be praying for you. What can I pray for you about? How can I pray for you about this? And boy, I'll be praying for you tonight. And My success rate on coming back to that prayer request is way worse than I'd like it to be. And even in the times where I do stop and I say, I gotta make sure I'm gonna pray for this person about that thing. What I'm asking of God for, on the behalf of that person, what you might ask the Lord on behalf of another person, you're asking in the, from the posture of, hopefully from the posture of saying, Lord, let your will be done, but it seems this is what this person needs, right? Ultimately, when you say amen, you're putting your faith entirely on the goodness of God to do what he deems right, whether it answers our prayer requests the way we think it should be answered or not. But consider when the perfect son of God prays for you, I will ask the father. And he doesn't say, and he might give you another helper, right? I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. How would you love to be able to pray with that kind of confidence? You can. You just have to pray for the right things, right? That leads us back up the passage that we've read to verses 12 through 14, which could be a sermon in and of itself. I mean, this is a very tricky chapter to kind of break down into a sermon series. But if you look at verse 12, as Jesus has come off of his conversation of being the way, the truth, and the life, and the home that he's prepared for his disciples, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. What kind of works has Jesus done? He's walked on water. He's fed 5,000 people with a little kid's lunch. He's raised a man from death after four days. 
He's done all these amazing things. And what he says to his disciples is that the things that he has done will be matched by and will even be surpassed, in a sense, by the work of his disciples. What could that possibly mean? It seems easiest to consider what it shouldn't mean, right? It shouldn't mean that Jesus' disciples in some way become superior to him, right? This is not a case of the teacher passing on everything he knows, and then, you know, in, in the final test he realizes, there's nothing left for me to teach you because you know it all and you've even surpassed me. That is not the relationship between Christ and his disciples. It certainly can't mean that any individual miracles or signs that a disciple does could surpass the, the wondrous signs that, you know, John only emphasizes seven throughout his gospel um, coming to the paramount of, of Lazarus being raised from the dead. It's not to say that they will somehow figure out a way to invent a new sign or wonder that would surpass anything Jesus has done. That would be pointless. And it would perhaps muddle the message of the gospel. It would perhaps lead people to think in a matter of seeking a greater life or a greater position than Christ himself. But what I think it must mean, and I think this because smarter people have told me this, but I think this must mean these greater works and being asked in the name of Christ so that the Father might be glorified is referring to what will happen when Jesus ascends. So look again at verses 12 through 14, towards the end of verse 12, rather. He says, whoever believes in me will do these works. They'll be greater because I am going to the Father. Because I'm going to the Father is referring not only to the action of Jesus being reunited with the Father, but the thing that brings him to the Father, which is the cross. That in the atoning work of Jesus, we are brought into, in one sense, a greater work than was done before. Because the message of the gospel is complete. Because when Jesus goes to the Father, the church age begins. And he sends who? The Holy Spirit. So greater in the sense that the message of the gospel has been complete. Not greater in the sense that we should be seeking spectacles or that we should be trying to make something of ourselves, but rather trusting and proclaiming Christ in all things. The message of the gospel will now have this peculiar effect and a greater effect than what we've seen even from Jesus feeding the 5,000. Because do you remember the crowd's reaction there? Let's make him king right now. Jesus runs away. This isn't to say that Jesus failed or messed up. He did what he intended to do. But now, when there's large crowds, look at the book of Acts and see Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost to three, over 3,000 people, 3,000 of them becoming believers in Christ. Jesus never had a sermon like that in the flesh in his earthly ministry. But his disciples do. Consider even Billy Graham filling up stadiums, not necessarily with all those millions of people believing his message every time, but with massive amounts of people, like so many people that maybe you even know could attribute something of their salvation process to a message they heard from a guy like Billy Graham. The preaching of the word. That is the greater work. And being asked in my name means that we're identifying with this person, this person in whom we have all of our life and that we need a helper to relate to. In my name, for the Father's glory. Qualifiers and purpose. Let's move on. Verses 15 through 17. If you ask, turns into if you love. 
to qualify this. This is why we didn't read, as, as you might imagine from your Bibles, if you look down, you've got a heading, I am the way, the truth, and life over John 14, and then a new heading doesn't come until 15. So you might have expected the first group to be 1 through 14, and you wouldn't be wrong to do so. However, in thinking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it seems helpful to tack 12 through 14 onto the following verses. So in light of that asking and asking in the name of Jesus and asking for the glory of the Father, then Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Doesn't that seem like an important factor in our prayer lives? The matter of obedience, the matter of keeping the word of Christ. If you ask me, turns into if you love me. And in that process is when he introduces, if you keep my commandments, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. This is not a a cause and effect type thing, but this is the fruit of life in Christ. Whoever loves me keeps my commandments. Our problem comes when we reverse that, right? I don't know if I love Jesus. Well, let me go and keep some commandments real quick and see how I feel after that. Or let me consider how good I've been this past week. I didn't cuss. I didn't yell at anybody. I never cut anybody off on the street. I didn't do these kinds of things. This is not what Jesus is asking for. What he's explaining, rather, is that love is accompanied by obedience. And it is the driving force for obedience. Not fear, not performance, but rather love. This is the relational condition between Christ and his disciples. And this is what brings about holiness in the life of the believer. Because for Jesus to dwell in believers means that the believer has to be holy just as the temple in the Old Testament was to be a holy place. Whoever loves me keeps my commandments. Or in verse 21, he says, has my commandments. These are the language of somebody giving something, not, not uh, you know, pushing on to someone. Hey, if you really want to be a Christian, you better get all these things down. But this is a gift. Now, how many of us as kids ever thought, wow, mom and dad, thank you for this list of chores that I have to do. What a gift, right? That's not the reaction of any of us, right? Our reaction is an eye roll and a sidestep and what else could distract me from doing this very thing? This is not the spirit of Christ in us to say, accomplish these things, but rather, do you want a life in Christ? Do you love Christ? Here is the life of Christ that I'm going to help you walk in, the Spirit says. He is the another helper. It's very interesting that Jesus doesn't just say a helper here. He says another helper. Who could be a better helper than Jesus? Well, no one, but you can get just as good of a helper in the Holy Spirit because he himself is also God. It could only be the spirit he's referring to here. Verses 18 through 20 open with this wonderful phrase as we've heard the heart of Christ in verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Or or back to 33 of verse 13. Little children, a little while I'm with you. He speaks again to those affectionately his. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. This is his promise. There's a promise of his resurrection, of the spirit's arrival, and then ultimately of his return. And for the disciples, the most immediate one is, you're going to go to the cross. You're going to die. What are we going to do without you? And Jesus promises that he will return. 
Now, we know he's returned. We see that clearly in God's word. We're not waiting for his return from death. We're waiting for his return from heaven. But in the middle, there's also a waiting for the Holy Spirit. So there's actually three stages that really Jesus is promising as we walk in the life of Christ. And then verses 21 through 24, the bookend of the relational essentials with Christ. If you love me, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He reverses it to show again the importance of these things are not a, a step one and a step two, but they are in and of themselves the, the heart posture of the believer. If there is obedience, there is love. If there's no love, there's not true obedience. And our desires are the things that that kind of direct us in one way or the other. Perhaps they direct us to say, I want to make sure that everyone else knows how much I love Jesus. If that is our primary goal, we're going to sidestep obedience and run quickly into legalism. So for our conflict this morning, we need to realize the way that our desires warp our trust in his help. Why does this all matter? Why is, why is there such an importance put on the nearness of Christ in this passage? And I think it is just because of that, because our desires will warp our trust in his help. To live the Christian life apart from acknowledging and leaning on the Holy Spirit is to live the Christian life in a helpless state. You know, this title, Another Helper, is not Jesus using this word how we so often use it now. Like we talk about daddy's little helper, mommy's little helper. You're going to stand up on the stool and help me make the macaroni and cheese. I don't know why I keep thinking about macaroni and cheese, but hungry, I don't know. Um, this is not that. The Holy Spirit is not a sidekick to the Christian life. He is the helper to the helpless. That's what he's here to do. You are helpless to live the Christian life because your desires, apart from the Holy Spirit's guidance, are going to lead you further from Christ. That, that desire that Jesus perhaps is even referring to, whoever loves me. We can, Jesus warns in other places, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Why are their hearts far from them? Because apart from the Holy Spirit, we're just dead in our trespasses and sins. We are helpless. And Judas acknowledges that. This is in verse 22. Judas, who is not Iscariot, this is another one of the disciples, says, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? There are a lot of different ways that you could go with this question, but perhaps it would be helpful for us to think along the lines of how Judas is acknowledging the world can't see, can't receive, and can't know the Holy Spirit. Jesus has made that clear in this passage. But his question might amount to, why is it that the world doesn't at once turn to Christ at the work of the Spirit? You know, if, if preaching, for instance, if just preaching God's word is, is a 100% effective rate and, and that, that it's always going to be accompanied by the spirit and power if the person doing it is in a humble posture to trust in that, why is it that we don't all, you know, repent in sackcloth and ashes every single Sunday? Why is it that some might hear the gospel in a, in a perfectly succinct and understandable way and ultimately deny it? Why is it that the Holy Spirit will be revealed to the, us but not to the world? boils down to a question of will the Spirit truly help me in all things? You're telling me you're leaving, you're telling me the Spirit's coming, but I don't know what, what's going to happen in that in-between stage where I'm not sure of his presence. And that's why Jesus says 
that the spirit whom he is sending, in verse 17, whom the world cannot receive, is one that they already know. You know him, for he dwells with you. Now, this is why we pointed out in the Gospel of John, what does Jesus mean about the Spirit dwelling with and then distinguishing with from in, right? John the Baptist perhaps gives us the answer in the first chapter. I saw the Lamb of God, and I saw the Holy Spirit descend and remain upon him. The Holy Spirit was working through Jesus throughout his entire ministry, He was leaning on the power of the Holy Spirit, not even on his own. He's the Son of God. He can do whatever he wants, right? But in entering humanity, he lived the life that we could not and that we should have. And so he lives it by the Spirit working in him, just as we are as well commanded to do so. But this doubt, perhaps, if if we let it become an unbelieving kind of doubt of wondering if the Spirit will truly help me in all things, or or does He only help me when I'm like on track with everything? If I've gotten myself into trouble, does the Spirit not care about that? Is He going to just wait for me to figure my stuff out? It leads us to sin. Ultimately, it wells up into us a rebellious position towards Christ. Which is why Jesus warns that the world can't see him, can't receive him. They think in material senses. When, we're, when our mindset is purely earthly and only thinking about the problems of the earth, which they matter, right? This is why it's so tricky. This is why the gospel message isn't, hey, let's, listen up, just forget about everything in your life and just focus on spiritual things. Don't pay your taxes. Don't fill your gas can. You know, like just leave all that thing behind. That would, that would be more straightforward. Jesus wants us to care about the things in this world, but he wants us to put it in its proper place, to be thinking along his mission. So, so when he says, I'll give you whatever you ask in prayer in my name so that the Father may be glorified. And that may very well just be the distinction between the desires and the plans of the world versus the desire and the plan of God himself, his own glory, the glory of Christ, the glory mediated by the Spirit. But again, sin wells up into us a rebellious position towards Christ, either actively or passively, right? If, if we're not, you might be in this morning, like, hey, I'm not against the glory of God. That sounds really good. But, but what in the past week shows that that's been your goal? I don't know. I had a really hard week. I just wanted to get through it. Every week's going to be hard, right? Now, this is the point where I've been telling myself, when you get to the part where you feel like you might start getting a hammer out to beat people over the head with this verse, remember the context. Jesus is not speaking to the Holy Spirit here to say, get your act together, Christians. What's wrong with you? This is the gentle Christ speaking to those whom he knows has troubled hearts. So many of us perhaps might be coming to church this morning thinking, I don't even know how to take the next step in thinking about the glory of God in my life or, or in, and how I might proclaim this gospel message because my desires are, and my thoughts and my plans, my goals, my perspective is so captured by this other thing. This is why we need a helper. Without the help of the Spirit, it's not only a matter of our perspective, goals, and dreams, and desires, but it's also a matter of our love growing cold. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I can't keep commandments without the Spirit, without the Helper. So what do we open up to? 
What is it in this life that we perhaps open our hearts to and say, yeah, you can go ahead and come in even though I know you're bringing destruction and you're bringing me away from Christ. We may not actually know it. We may not be clearly acknowledging what we're doing to do that, but the Spirit knows. And he doesn't know with the desire. He's, he doesn't say, I'm going to send you another convictor or condemner. Actually, the Spirit will convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. We'll see that later. But he says here, a helper for his people. The Spirit's goal as a helper or a, an encourager is to help us realize those misaligned desires that have warped our trust in helping him. This isn't a matter of a competition between spiritual elite either. This is not to say that there are some people who are on a higher plateau because they've been given a greater measure of the Spirit. Remember, the Spirit is given without measure. There, there is no superiority of spiritual gifts. There's no superiority of even spiritual maturity. But we are all united in Christ. And in, and in that union, we are united by our need for him. Romans 8, 9 says that whoever doesn't have the Holy Spirit doesn't belong to God. So this can't be a matter of saying, you know, there's, there's this second filling that happens that, that happens after salvation is a separate thing. The Spirit comes in and works that salvation in us and brings us all into the same body of Christ. Yeah, we're unique. We have different functions, different gifts, but there's no superiority and there's no secret to the Holy Spirit. But there is a greater concern that sin could choke out our love and that we might stop up our ears to the Holy Spirit. So Jesus' solution is that we might believe that his victory over death has secured his help forever. Look at verse 19, if you will, please. A little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Who talks like that, right? Well, in one sense, all of us. We make plans for the afternoon, and next week, and a month from now. And wouldn't we all love to have a great five-year plan? Jesus speaks with a peculiar confidence here. Because I live, he says, the night of his death. The night that he will go to the cross and pay for the, the penalty for the sins of all of his people. Taking all the wrath of God upon himself. He says so with such confidence because there is this difference between us and him regarding sin. Sin separates us from God, but Christ is united with the Father. You know, he says at the end of our passage this morning, whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The reason you have the word of God is because Christ has brought it to your heart by his Spirit and the reason that the Spirit is sent is because Jesus goes to the Father. And what that means in Him going to the Father is that He must first die. But His victory over death secures our helper for all time. He gives us the Spirit, as we read from Ephesians, as a guarantee, as the seal. That's why I really like this picture that I found with this, you know, this, I don't know, offense or something like that, and the imprint of the heart in there. That the Spirit comes not as a, as a sticker that you might put on the outside of a folder or something. Not, not something that is temporary that could easily be scratched off or removed. But because of what Christ did on the cross, the Spirit is given to us as a seal, as a guarantee of what Jesus has done. 
And so though I have conflicting desires and though I read things like, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I've been breaking commandments left and right. I know that the spirit in me is working in me and is transforming my heart not to be like that dead, sin-consumed heart, but to be like the heart of Christ, to have his life in me so that I can grow in this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will keep them that they will be seen as a treasure to you. Do you open up God's word and see treasure or do you just see commandments in the, in the terms of a forced kind of situation between you and God? Do you see this as God's gift to you? Because if you do, that's because the gift of the Spirit has been given to you to understand that. This is all because the Lamb of God conquered sin and death at the cross. Because I go to the Father, unless he goes to the cross, we have no hope of a helper whatsoever. Christ gives us himself to redirect us in prayer, to give us a helper, to give us an assurance that when we walk this Christian life, though we stumble left and right, the Spirit is our guide and our helper, as we sang earlier. By the helper also, we have access to our home, to our sanctuary, as it were, from our theme this year, in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 14. This is not just a distant home that we'll someday move into, but it's as good as guaranteed for us. This amazing love, the gift of the helper, transforms our desires, realigns our goals and our dreams and perspectives to the glory of the Father. So how do we walk in all of this? What does all this matter? Why does Crosspoint need the helper today? Why do you need the helper today? Like Judas, do you ever wonder if, if the Spirit will indeed help us with all the things in life or just with some things? Paul tells us in Galatians that we ought to walk by the Spirit. Not merely to acknowledge His presence, but to make the Spirit our guide. Not, again, to be the helper who is, you know, trailing behind us and just there in case we can't quite handle something on our own, but rather to be the one to remind us that Christ has overcome all things in the world. And to remind us to trust His precious promises. And to trust that they are secure in our helper forever. So four things to leave you with. When sin seeks to quench my love for Christ, which when does that happen? All the time. Might be happening right now. Most likely is in my own heart, right? When temptation to sin wants to choke out my love for Jesus, I can trust that the spirit of truth, as Jesus called him, will reveal and strengthen me for repentance. As we said last week, repentance is not a, let's, we're going this way to sin and we turn around and Jesus is somewhere far, far away. But repentance is our turning from sin to find Christ right there all along. And why is that? Because His Spirit is with us. And if you are in Christ, His Spirit is in you as well. He is the agent of change in our lives. And he is ever ready at any moment when you realize, Lord, this anger problem that I have, this lust problem that I have, this misalignment of priorities in my life, what can I do about those things? And his answer is, nothing. You need a helper. And I'm here. Secondly, when I fear that God has left me alone, which theologically never happens, right? But experientially, 
the place of our hearts, we wonder, God, are you in this? What are you doing? I don't see your hand. That's why things like what Charles Spurgeon said could be so helpful to us, that God is too good to let us down. He's too kind to be cruel. And when we cannot trace his hand, we can always trust his heart. We must fall back on what we know to be true of Christ. So when I fear that God perhaps has left me alone, I can trust the Spirit, my helper, to remind me that he's with me. That just as verse 23 says from Jesus, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. Old school style. You ready? Here we go. Been waiting my whole life for this. Just kidding. Where was I? Oh, uh, okay. I can trust that the Spirit, who is my helper, will remind me of my home in heaven and of the Father's home in my own heart. Of that great promise in verse 23 that when Jesus says that as we walk in relationship with Him, that the word, sorry, verse 23, my father will come to him and make our home with him. That home that we look forward to is available to us today. Thirdly, when the darkness of the world seizes my hope in Christ, I can trust the spirit to remind me of my confidence in Christ's return and victory over sin. Because I live, you will live. Because I go to the Father. All of these things that are promises about the Spirit are promised because of the work of Christ. Did I not turn it on? No, I'm good. Oh, okay. So all of your faces were saying, we can hear you now, guy. Chill out, right? When the darkness of the world seizes my hope, I can trust the Spirit to remind me Christ is going to return. And in that moment, his people, with that upward glance, will look and say, I knew it. Not in a prideful way, but in a way of saying, everything I've hoped for is complete in this moment when I see him face to face. And imagine seeing Christ face to face upon his return, either because you go to meet him before he shows up or, or because we happen to experience that wonderful moment of his return in our own lifetime. Making eye contact with one whom you've never seen but have known because he has made his home in you. Lastly, when I feel I have nothing to offer the mission of Christ in the church, I trust the Spirit to remind me He is my helper in all things, especially in seeking the glory of the Father and the salvation of the lost. Why is it greater works? Because now the gospel message is complete and y'all have it. If you're in Christ, it's yours. It's yours to spread abroad, to share with anyone. There's never a time where you say, man, I really shouldn't have shared the gospel just now. That was not the right time, or not the right person, or not the right words, or not the right shirt, or whatever. None of those things matter. The gospel message is complete, and it is your task to proclaim it. If you love Christ, keep the commandments. Not to prove anything to Jesus, but to walk in that relationship with him, with that purpose in mind of the glory of the Father and the salvation of the lost. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father in heaven, we thank you that what you command, you give. 
There's nothing that you ask us to bring to the table of our own accomplishments or of our own talents or any of those kinds of things. You grant us a helper, not to be a sidekick or stand to the side until we need to call him in, but to walk moment by moment. A beautiful picture in the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus appears to his disciples and breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, the very breath of God, the life-giving, life-transforming, Christ-magnifying power that we need. Otherwise, what are we doing? Grant that we pray, Lord. Grant that in, a, in, a, in an ever-increasing, and ever-overflowing, and ever-measureless measure, if that's even possible. Because there are times sometimes it feels that we are drawn astray by our own desires, by the twisting of our affections. Lord, straighten out our hearts this morning. If someone doesn't know Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would transform their lives through the wonderful message of the cross. That all of our sin is paid for. We know that that is true because the Spirit tells us moment by moment that we are yours. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.